pray. Father, thank you for your goodness in providing us with the good news that is truly the real message of Christmas. Help us, Lord, to grasp it today and thus to be able to spread the gospel to the regions beyond. We'll praise you in Christ's name. Amen. The Apostle Paul, in his letter to the Galatians, spoke of the true gospel in contrast to another gospel, which was the word of the Judaizers. For every truth and reality, Satan has a counterfeit, his cheap substitute. And perhaps nowhere is this more seen than in the message of Christmas, cluttered up with all of the tinsel and toys and trivia that we have on every hand. If you buy a diamond or some gold, you'll want to be able to test it, to have it certified so that you can be certain that you haven't been cheated. And so it is with the true Christmas story. We want to be able to test it as to whether it is the message that indeed was the, the word of the angels that came to the shepherds and the word that the wise men heard and the word that Mary heard and all the characters of Christmas. We want to be able to sort out that which is real in the midst of a tinsel world. And so today we want to speak of the true good news of Christmas. In the first verse of the second book of the New Testament, the book of Mark, we read these words, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now that one word, gospel, is the word in the Greek, euanglion. E-U is a word, the prefix that means good. Euanglion is a word that means message. We get our word angel from this word. The angel is a messenger, therefore the anglion, the one that is the messenger of the message. The word is found 101 times in the New Testament. And uh, it usually is said to mean good news and is often translated in modern translations that way. And uh, the, the Romans, however, understood this word perhaps a little differently than you've ever thought of it before. And remember that it was into a Roman world that Jesus Christ was born. Therefore, the historical setting of all of this is very vital and very important to us. Let me just give a little bit of it to you. I think it's important to get this setting. And uh, those of you that hate history maybe will uh, uh, be a little bit bored. But hang in there because I think you'll see my purpose in sharing this with you after a little bit. After the death of Julius Caesar in 44 B.C., his grandnephew, Octavian, later called Augustus, which means uh, exalted one, ascended to the position of emperor of Rome. Later on, the Senate made a very major decision. They decided that even though they had called their rulers, Julius Caesar and rulers before that, emperors, that Augustus was the first august emperor. He was the first real, true emperor. And uh, the idea of him being the exalted one. And so they declared that he was none other than the supreme God himself sitting upon the throne of Rome. Now with that proclamation, there became the seeds of what later came to be known as the imperial cult. It was under the imperial cult that the emperors of Rome from Augustus Caesar on were known by a number of titles. The name Augustus itself was a title of deity. As we said, it meant exalted one. We get our English word august from that, which means to be revered. And uh, it's a Latin word, actually. And our month of August comes from this same source. The Greek word comes from the root, which means an object of worship. It's the word sebastos, and it's translated emperor. 
So an emperor or an Augustus was simply an object of worship. It was the way of exalting the, the, the person beyond that of earthly kingship to a king who indeed was deity. Another title that was used of the emperor was the title kurios. That word is translated in our New Testament, Lord. And it means Lord or absolute sovereign. It spoke of the sovereign right that the kurios had to decide what was right or wrong. Uh, his, his judgment could never be questioned. It meant that he was the absolute landowner and that everyone in Rome had parcels of property which really belonged to the state or really belonged to the emperor. And uh, it was just parceled out as a stewardship to them. But at any time that the emperor wanted to take possession of what was his, it was his privilege to do so. In 12 BC, Augustus was then declared Theos, Chi, Curios, God and Lord. The first emperors, Augustus and Tiberius, played down the implications of this title. But Caliglia, in AD 37 through 41, began to insist on that title. And by the time of Nero, in AD 54 to 68, emperors were called the Lord of all of the world. And with it, the state became totalitarian. It was this title that was the common title in the imperial cult. Each citizen was commanded to take a pinch of incense and offer it to Caesar and simply say the words, Caesar is Curios. Caesar is Lord. And it was the failure of the Christian community to comply with that that led them to the lions and to the gladiators and led them to their deaths. Still another title that was bestowed upon the emperor was that of Savior. Now the Greek word is soter. You find numerous writings in secular field, particularly in the classical Greek, that speak of the concept of the ruler being the savior, or the ruler being soter. In an inscription found in Southwest Asia Minor in the ruins of the city of Halicarsnus, Caesar Augustus was called soter, or savior, who brought peace. Nero, later on, was referred to as the only savior of Rome. Isn't it interesting? He's the one that burned it down. And uh, he's the one that really broke the back of the Roman emperor, uh, empire. But yet he was called the savior of Rome. Now, when a victory was won in the Roman Empire, or the Grecian Empire, when an enemy was captured, a messenger went forth on foot or on horseback to proclaim that message of victory. This was called the euanglion, the gospel. Or when there was a wedding to be announced, the man went forth and proclaimed that this wedding was going to happen, and what he proclaimed was called the gospel, the good news, the euanglia. But they, they was a very, very special way of understanding the gospel at the time that Jesus Christ was born. When an emperor ascended to the throne, it was called the gospel as it was proclaimed. When an emperor had a son that was born to him and therefore the heir, hence another emperor, that was called the euanglion. The proclamation went forth and the wording of it was very precise. Here's what it said. 
There is no under other name under heaven whereby ye must be saved other than that of Augustus Caesar. That was the proclamation. That was the gospel. Now, I want to read for you a quote concerning Caesar. I don't want you to get confused. It'll be very easy to shift into this and read into this your theological knowledge. Remember, this is a totally secular source. It is speaking of a secular person. It is speaking of Caesar as a part of the imperial cult. Listen to it. Here's what it says. The ruler is divine by nature. His power extends to men, to animals, to the earth, and to the sea. Nature belongs to him. Wind and waves are subject to him. This isn't speaking of Almighty God. It's not speaking of Jesus Christ. It's speaking of the emperor of Rome. He works miracles and heals men. He is the savior of the world who also redeems individuals from their difficulties. Tuke, which is a Greek word meaning one who controls the destiny, the fate, the fortune of another. Tuke is linked up with his person. He himself is Tuke. In other words, he is the one who controls the destiny of all people on earth. This is the emperor. He has appeared on earth as deity in human form. He is the protective god of the state. His appearance is the cause of good fortune to the whole kingdom. Extraordinary signs accompany the course of his life. They proclaim the birth of the ruler of the world. A comet appears at his accession. And at his death, signs in the heavens declare his assumption into the ranks of the gods. Because the emperor is more than a common man, his ordinances are glad messages, and his commands are sacred writings. What he says is a divine act and implies good and salvation for men. He proclaims euanglia, good news, the gospel, through his appearance. The first euanglia is at his birth. The birthday of the God was for the world the beginning of the joyful messages which have gone forth because of him. Other euanglia follow the news of his coming of age and especially his accession to the throne. Joy and rejoicing come with the news. Humanity, sighing under a heavy burden of guilt, wistfully longs for peace. Doom is feared because the gods have withdrawn from the earth. Then suddenly there rings out the gospel, the good news, that Soter, Savior, is born, that he has mounted the throne, and that a whole new era dawns for the world. This euanglion is celebrated with offerings and yearly festivals. All cherished hopes are exceeded. The world has taken on a new appearance. That was the proclamation concerning Caesar. That is what the world looked for upon the throne of Rome. Ah, oh, time after time they were disappointed. He couldn't do wonders. He couldn't save the kingdom. He couldn't do this, he couldn't do that, all that they dreamed of him. And they kept wondering who will be the real emperor, the one that would take his place. The one who would rise up and fulfill all of their hopes and dreams and desires. The one who indeed would be a god. And their dreams, time after time, were dashed. 
But this was the Roman view of the answer to the world's needs. An emperor sitting upon the throne who would be Lord, who would be Savior, who would be King, who would be worthy of worship and reverence. And it was into that world that there appeared an angel to a group of humble shepherds keeping sheep by night and said to them, for unto you we bring to you the good tidings, gospel, euanglion, of great joy which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of Bethlehem a soter, who is Christ the Kurios. This was the proclamation of the true emperor, the true king, the king of kings and the Lord of lords. Now the true gospel is the good news that in spite of man's proneness to worship the creature more than the creator, in spite of the attitude of reprobation that causes him to exalt man to the place of deity, God in the fullness of time sent forth his own son veiled in human flesh, taking upon himself the form of a servant, suffering unto death. And he, and he alone, is the Savior, the Lord, the only Lord of all. Caesars may come, and Caesars may go. World rulers abound on every hand. And of course those world rulers may bring a measure of peace but only Jesus Christ is the Prince of Peace. They may produce wonders, but only He can raise the dead and make the blind to see, cleanse the leper, and master the demon world. They may speak with authority, but only He can say all authority is given unto me in heaven and on earth. They may declare themselves to be Lord, but only He is King of kings and Lord of lords. He stands apart as the only omnipotent potentate. Now you think in terms of the comparison of Jesus Christ in this Roman world which had such a concept of, a, of an emperor, you think in terms of how the gospel must have stood out upon that backdrop. First of all it declared that Jesus Christ was king and worthy of worship. Matthew's gospel relates the story of the magi from the east. Where is he that is born the king of the Jews? For we have come to worship him. This must have flown in the face of Caesar. Realizing that this one who had been born in Bethlehem's manger was being worshipped by royal dignitaries from afar off. But what insight and what foresight these wise men had. They knew he was a king. They honored him as such with their gifts. They worshipped him as the king who indeed is God, they bowed before him. I saw in a car the other day the bumper sticker that said, wise men still seek him. We hope that you're wise today and that you still seek him and bow at his feet and worship him. After the feeding of the multitudes, the people wanted to make him king. But they didn't want a king in the sense of the emperor. Oh, they wanted a king that they could manipulate, the one that they could use for their own ends. They wanted to achieve certain things, and they saw him as the puppet king that could do those things. And he refused worship on that basis. He said, no, no, no. No, I won't allow you to crown me king with your ends in view. 
Rather, I am king. I merely want you to believe in me and worship me as such. He wouldn't allow them to have a king on their own terms. After the demands of his kingdom were made clear, these same people gathered around the Pilate's hall and cried, We will not have this man reign over us. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. He's a rejected king. They hung him upon a Roman cross. Above his head they put the words, This is the king of the Jews. The Jews wanted to change it. He says he's king of the Jews. Pilate said, What I've written, I have written. Earlier, you remember, he said to Pilate, My kingdom is not of this world. Pilate says, Are you a king then? And Christ said, Thou sayest that I'm a king. You said it. I didn't. But since you said it, I'll admit it. Yes, I am. To this end was I born. And for this cause came I into the world. He was the king. He was the God king. But he was rejected of men. <laughs> you know, the interesting thing is the last chapter's not been written yet. Oh yes, it's been written in prophecy, but it's not yet been written in history. He still is the king. Today, the rejected king, calling out a people for his name in a time of his rejection, determining who will follow him, the rejected king, the one that's despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Who will follow him? If you are willing to follow him now, in his time of rejection, there will be great reward in his time of exaltation. John's apocalyptic vision reveals Jesus Christ crowned and worshipped in heaven. It's Jesus Christ that John saw riding upon a white horse, eyes like a flame of fire, many diadems upon his head, out of his mouth a sharp sword, and written on his vesture was what? King of kings and Lord of lords. You read those last chapters of the book of Revelation, you are struck with the fact that this one who is the rejected king will be the exalted king, and he will take his place of rightful lordship over the whole earth. The gospel declares that a king has been born, and that king is Jesus Christ. The euanglion of his birth has gone forth from angelic messengers, and it anticipates the accession that he will have to an everlasting throne of glory. He alone is worthy of our worship. King of my life, I crown thee now. Thine shall the glory be, lest I forget thy thorn-crowned brow. Lead me to Calvary. But there's a second thing. The gospel also declares the good news that he is Lord. Not Caesar, but Jesus Christ. The pagan concept of Lord required that kurios, or absolute landowner, produce credentials that the emperors could not do. After the Sermon on the Mount, which was the Magna Carta of his kingdom, it says that men were amazed because he spoke as one that had authority. After, this, after a time, you remember that he healed the sick and made the blind to see, the deaf to hear, the mute to speak, the lame to walk, the leper to be clean, the dead to rise. And people began to wonder what sort of a person he was. After he calmed the sea, the terrible storm in the Sea of Galilee, his disciples said to themselves, What manner of man is this, that even the winds and the waves obey him? That was what the emperor was supposed to be able to do. But nobody had ever done it. Nobody had ever been able to pull it off. There would never been a time in history where an emperor had stood in a boat in the midst of a raging storm and said, Peace, be still, and the winds and the waves obeyed him. 
In their theory of the imperial cult, they knew that the emperor was supposed to do that, but there was no historical record of it. But here with their own eyes, they had seen this once. Say, peace, be still, and the winds and the waves obeyed him. Ah, his credentials were there. He is curios. He proclaimed himself Lord of the Sabbath. And Peter, in his great sermon on the day of Pentecost, described the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and then he said this, Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus, whom you have crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now to these people living in a Roman Empire, they would understand what he meant by Lord, Curios. It means that he is the sovereign. That everyone else in any other position or throne, any other exalted political position, they are all under the authority of Curios. There could only be one Curios. They had assumed that the one they called Curios, Caesar, was that one. There could only be one. They didn't like it, but they acknowledged, indeed, that he was the Lord of the earth. He was in charge. Yet Jesus Christ is Curios, Lord. And of course they understood when he said he's made both Lord and Christ. Because Christ is Christos, the, the anointed one, the Messiah. What he was saying with, to these Jews was Messiah has come. And this Messiah is not only Messiah, but he is also Curios. He is also Lord and Master over all the earth. He indeed is the exalted one. He is the one who is Augustus, if you please. He is the one who is the Lord. And they recognized that what he was saying here was flying in the face of an empire that worshiped Caesar. Did you know that Jesus Christ is called Lord in the New Testament over 600 times? Think of the implications of that. Every time that word Lord was mentioned in reference to Jesus Christ, there could be only one implication. He's over Caesar. Can you understand a little bit of why there was such a reaction on the part of the Roman Empire, particularly as the imperial cult grew up into the time of Nero and then beyond? Can you imagine why there was such a reaction to this one Jesus of Nazareth who was being called by his followers, Curios? Philippians chapter 2 tells us, Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him, and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, and every tongue confess Jesus as Curios, Lord. Paul in Ephesians 4 speaks of one Lord, making no mistake about it. There could only be one. Colossians chapter 3, verse 24, he says, You serve the Lord, Christ. Thou shalt worship the Lord, thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. This put the Christian message in direct conflict with the state. They would not bow. They would not bend to Caesar. And what did it cost them? Their lives. Polycarp was told, we know that you're an influential man. We know that people look to you and respect you. We know that you wouldn't want to harm others. We know that you wouldn't want to harm yourself. 
And we don't want to give you any trouble. All we ask is a simple thing. Just say Caesar is Lord. Don't have to mean it. Doesn't hurt. What harm could it do? Others will see you doing it and they'll come in line and everything will be fine. It's not a matter of doing it with conviction. We're not saying that you have to change your way. Worship Jesus Christ. That's no problem. But say Caesar is Lord. Just say it. Polycarp, 86 years old at this time. With a smile upon his face, he says, For these 60 years, I have served my Lord Jesus Christ, and he has never denied me once. Should I deny him now? You see, to say that Caesar is Lord is to say that Jesus Christ is not. It's not a matter of accentuating the positive, Caesar is Lord. It's a matter of the negative. If I say Caesar is Lord, the positive, the negative is assumed. Jesus isn't. And Jesus is. And Caesar isn't. You got it twisted. No way. That was Polycarp. Historical records tell us that those that took him were amazed at his serene, cheerful countenance. He desired an hour for prayer. Which being allowed, he prayed with such fervency that his guards repented that they had come for him. He was, however, carried at once before the proconsul condemned to be burned alive, led into the marketplace. He was still praying as they bound him hand and foot to the stake. The fire was set to the wood and the flames grew hot. The executioners gave way on both sides and the heat was intolerable. All this time, this dear 86-year-old man sang praises to God in the midst of the flames. And for some strange reason that no one could quite explain, he remained unconsumed for a time. And the burning of the wood just seemed to send a sweet fragrance round about. So much so there was an encouragement to those standing as Christians round about watching this ceremony. But determined to get it over with and bothered by the exuberant singing coming from the midst of the flames. They took their spears and they threw them into his body. And so much blood covered out, came out from his body that it just extinguished the flames. They had to start all over again. And laying on the ground, he still was singing. And they threw spears once again upon him. And then, after he died, they burned his body, accomplishing what they had purposed to do in the first place. He was still singing as he died because he knew that Christ is Lord. Strange in our day doesn't cost you anything, does it, to say Christ is Lord? It costs them their lives. So people today very easily can deny Christ by allowing other things to take precedence in their life. Money is Lord. Material things is Lord. My family is Lord. My wishes, my desire is Lord. Looking for salvation is something other than the one who indeed himself is Lord. Jesus Christ is Lord, my friend. Reiterated 600 times in the New Testament, he is Lord. He is the only one worthy of sovereign right over your life. And if he is sovereign, he is the only sovereign. He is the only one that has the right, the crown rights to your life. He's the only absolute master. He's the only absolute landowner. 
He is Lord of Lords. And the gospel tells us that, that he is born Christ the Lord. Bow down before him. Love and adore him. His name is wonderful. Jesus, my Lord. But there's another thing. The gospel, the Euanglion, also makes clear that he, and he alone, is the Savior. His name, Jesus, makes this plain, and ye shall call his name Jesus, Savior, for he shall save his people from their sins. Christ declared in Luke 19.10, For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. John 3.17, we read, God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. A Calcutta newspaper tells the story of a young Brahmin priest who came to the missionary. He said to the missionary, there are many things which Christianity contains which I find in Hinduism, but there is one thing that Christianity has that Hinduism does not. The missionary said, what's that? He said, a savior. The vast deficiency of the Roman Empire was that it did not provide a Savior, either for time or for eternity. The vast problem with all of the religions of the world that leave Jesus Christ out is that they do not provide a Savior. The problem with politics and governments and everything else is they do not provide a Savior. With the highest hopes and aspirations we may have, in our particular system of government, it does not provide salvation for people. And corruption and difficulty and problems and pressure just mount year after year. The world is desperately in need of a Savior, one who can save. Paul says in 1 Timothy 1.15, this is a faithful saying worthy of all acceptation, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, to save, and to save sinners. Romans 1.16, which we quoted a few moments ago as we read the responsive reading, Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. Christ's mission was clearly that of bringing salvation to men. It required his perfect life. He who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. It required that that perfect life be taken in sacrificial substitutionary death, for without the shedding of blood there is no remission for sins. And it was with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot, that Jesus Christ provided for the salvation of men. It required his resurrection, for in Hebrews 7.25 it says, Wherefore he is able to save to the uttermost them that come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for us. It is a very clear thing that in order to provide salvation, it was not a matter of his birth. That provided a Savior. Christ the Savior is born. But it could, he could not be the Savior until he had accomplished what was necessary in his sinless life, in his vicarious death, and in his victorious resurrection. All of that was totally necessary in order for Jesus Christ to save to the uttermost them that come unto God by him. 
And now, you see, because he's accomplished all of that, he can take a man from the guttermost and save him to the uttermost. It doesn't matter who the sinner is or what his sin was. He can save any person, any time. He'll put his faith and trust in Jesus Christ. He's the Savior. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 4, it says, Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel, which was preached unto you, which ye also have received, and in which ye stand. For I delivered unto you first of all that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scripture, that He was buried, and that He rose again the third day according to the Scripture. Paul says that is the gospel. The gospel of His birth is one thing. It's a marvelous story, because it potentially provides for a Savior. But the gospel of His death and resurrection is that which will save men from their sins. Now with all of this in mind, Peter, in speaking of Jesus Christ of Nazareth as being the rejected stone which became the head of the corner, stood up before people, all of whom would be familiar with the imperial cult, all of whom would be familiar with the fact that they were under the domination of Rome. And what did he say? He used the same words as the euanglion concerning the emperor. He said this, neither is there salvation in any other for there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Not Caesar. Christ. He is the one that brings salvation to man. And those angels, to those shepherds on the hillside, said, I bring you the gospel. The gospel is this. Unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. How wonderful it would be if at this Christmas season you would seek Him like the shepherds, worship Him like the wise men, proclaim Him like the apostles, and acknowledge Him as Savior and Lord. That's the gospel. Napoleon, in his last days, turned to the scriptures to find the meaning of life. With all of his fame and glory, all of his conquests, he could not really say that he had found the real answer. As he searched the scriptures, he discovered who Jesus was. One day he called General Bertrand, who was an atheist, into his room. He said, Bertrand, I know men, and I tell you, Jesus Christ is not a man. Superficial minds see a resemblance between Christ and the founders of empires and the God of other religions. That resemblance does not exist. We can say to the authors of every other religion, you are neither gods nor agents of deity. What do these gods so boastful know more than other mortals? These legislators, Greek or Roman, this Numa, this Lycargus, these priests of India or Memphis, this Confucius, this Mohammed, absolutely nothing. They have made a perfect chaos of mortals. There is not one among them all who has said anything new in reference to our future destiny, to the soul, to the essence of God, to creation. Enter the sanctuaries of paganism. There you'll find perfect chaos. A thousand contradictions. 
wars between the gods, the immobility of sculpture, the division and the rending of unity, the parceling out of divine attributes mutilated or denied in their essence. It is not so with Christ. Everything in him astonishes me. His spirit overawes me and his will confounds me. Between him and whoever else in the world there is no possible term of comparison. He is truly a being by himself. Bertrand, if you do not perceive that Jesus Christ is God very well, then I did wrong to make you a general. Anybody so stupid as to not believe the obvious evidence that Jesus Christ is God well, my mistake. I should never have made you a general. You see, my friend, anyone examining the facts would have to declare Caesar is not Lord. Caesar is not a Savior. And Caesar is not a king worthy of worship. He is not God. Jesus Christ is. Do you know, I see a lot of Christians living their lives as though something else was the Lord. That is a tragedy. Do you understand the implications of who he claimed to be and proved himself to be? He is Lord. Do you realize that that was the implication of what John meant when he told the the believers to whom he was writing in 1 John, my little children, keep yourself from idols. Don't worship anything else. Don't give allegiance to anything else. Why? Jesus is Lord, that's why. Bow down before him. Worship him. Adore him. Live for him. Serve him. Nothing else is worthy. He alone is Lord. And that's seen in the book of Revelation, the fourth chapter, when they begin to search for someone who can open the title deed of the world. All the creatures in heaven defer to him. The angels in heaven begin to weep. Those that are standing around as spectators begin to weep. They said, no one, no one is worthy to open the scroll. They look through all of the course of history, see all of the Caesars, all of the kings, all of the leaders, all of the religious leaders of the world. Look down through the entire course of history. They could not find one person who could step forth in that eternal day and take the title deed of the world and begin to open up for the final answer to man's need. No one could until the Lamb stepped forward. And the cry went out, He alone is worthy. He's the only one worthy of our worship. Some of you will be mighty miserable in heaven because you've been so busy worshiping other things down here. You won't be in practice for worshiping him up there. Because that's what heaven's going to be all about. Is worshiping and serving him. And a recognition of his full worth and majesty and glory. And throughout the countless ages of eternity, that's what we'll be doing. If you don't enjoy it now, how can you expect to enjoy it then? Everything's going to be faded into oblivion when you see him in his glory. God's word has revealed him so that we'll see him in his glory. And when we see him in his glory, we bow down and realize our own unworthiness and we worship. 
spontaneous reaction to the fact that he indeed is King and Lord and Savior. So crown him King of your life. Let him call the shots. Let him tell you what to do. Realize that he is the absolute landowner, that he owns everything you have. You've been given it as a stewardship, but he still is the boss. Let him control your thoughts and your actions. There may be some here today who need to know him as Savior. Remember now, Caesar can't save you. The greatest welfare programs in the world is not going to save you and give you any uh, income in heaven. He came to seek and to save that which is lost. He can save you. What's required? Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. Come to the cross of Calvary. Realize Christ died for your sins according to the scriptures. He was buried and he was raised the third day according to the scriptures. Jesus Christ paid it all. All to him you owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, leaving you short of the glory of God. But Jesus Christ provided abundantly so you might have eternal life. What does it require? Simple faith in him. Lifting up an empty hand to God to receive, not to give. There's nothing you could give him, but receive what he offers. Salvation. What a difference it makes. Caesar is not Lord. Jesus Christ is. You have to be so convinced of that that you're willing to die for it. Then we'll know something of the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, these are serious words. It is good news. We rejoice in it. But, oh, Lord, when we realize the implications upon the backdrop of this historical understanding, we realize that though you are called Lord 600 times in the New Testament, we fail to allow you to be Lord of our life. We know someday every knee will bow, every tongue will confess Jesus is Lord. Right now, there's the failure in our own heart to acknowledge that by the way we live. Humble us before you, we pray. Some are here, Lord, we know that do not know our Savior. Oh, Father, I would just pray that before this day is finished, they might acknowledge you as King worthy of worship as Lord and as Savior. We'll praise you for it. In Christ's precious name, amen.